Amen. <clears throat> Boy, I was laughing real hard about my little sister's birthday in 40 until I realized I'm supposed to be eight years older than her. And I did the math, and she is not 40. <laughs> and I will not let that stand. She's 26, <laughs> and I'm 34, and mom's only 29. So the whole thing, no. Happy 37th birthday, Holly. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we're starting a little early this morning. Anybody here want kind of an update on the trial? Yeah. Okay. All right, it's a war. Whoa. I've got... Someone's calling my computer. Oh, I thought, man, no wonder Apple's stock's going up so high. They've got these computers that get phone calls. Judge Harden said if you take calls during your opening statement that you could, could take them here. Yeah, we, uh, I'm always really good about turning off my cell phone in court. I mean, this is, I do that for a living and I turn my cell phone off in court. I'm giving this two and a half hour, <laughs> wake me up later, opening statement to the jury. And like an hour into it, my phone starts ringing. And it's in my briefcase right there. And I just looked up and said, I, sorry, judge, you know, reached down. I said, I know it's not my mom. She's here. So I just <laughs> tossed the phone to one of my lawyers and said, turn it off quick. But uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we're having a war, right? And I mean, this is a war. There's like 8,000 million lawyers okay, <laughs> down there. They've got four rows of the courtroom reserved for media, okay, because the media is real tuned into this case. Merck has kind of said if they win this case, they think they'll put Vioxx back on the market. This is the test case to see if they should put it back on the market. And so uh, 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 we're just, you know, we're so focused in. Well, I have this expert witness who testified some on Friday, and he'll come back and testify some toward the end of next week. Um, he's a super guy. But one of the things that, that uh, uh, Merck does is they try, and, and in fact, they actually have, we've got documents in place where they would find doctors who would speak out against this Vioxx product, and they would target, that's their word, these doctors to neutralize these doctors, again, their word, and if they couldn't neutralize them, then they would discredit them. Okay? So we've got the documents, and we're showing all this. Well, they're doing the same with my doctor. So they said to the judge, judge, this doctor that Lanier's got testifying, We've done, you know, exhaustive searches on him, and we found something that was said about him in Colorado that we think uh, we need to be able to talk about to the jury because it says that this guy, uh, uh, um, it was a judge in Colorado who'd made some harsh comments about my client. Well, the, I mean, my witness. Well, the Colorado Supreme Court reversed the judge and said, that's out of line, you shouldn't say it, so the judge didn't let it into evidence. He says, you can't get that into evidence. It was reversed on appeal, right? <clears throat> So Merck goes to the blasted newspaper in Brazoria County, Texas, and tells them you need to run the Sunday feature story on this witness and what the judge would not let into evidence so the jury can read it in the newspaper. And that just really chaps my lips. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm driving back to Houston Friday night. I'm just thanking God that it's a weekend and that I, I have a chance to see my family and, and see y'all and work on class and all, and I get the phone calls. 
you know, the, the, they're running it in the Sunday paper, da 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 da. So I'm, I'm sitting there in my brain thinking, okay, how many friends would I have to call to buy the newspaper? It can't be that expensive. You know, it's Brazoria County, Texas. That's one way to stop it. Then I'm thinking, yeah, I probably can't do that. Okay, what am I going to do? So I call the reporter, and I have to negotiate with him on the phone. And I'm supposed to be a trial lawyer. All I'm supposed to do is have to stand up and ask questions and present evidence, you'd think. But now I'm calling the, court, the, the reporter saying, okay, look, you think it's an interesting story? Fine. Run it when the trial's over. Why are you going to influence this trial? Why are you going to be a pawn in their hand and let them dictate what goes on here? He says, well, you know, it's going to be a really good story. I said, I'll trade you. I've got some secret information nobody knows about. I'll tell you, and you can write about it the day it happens in court, so you will have said it before anybody else. You'll beat the AP, you'll beat Bloomberg, you'll beat CNN, you'll beat the New York Times, you'll scoop them all. He says, how good is it? <laughs> I said, it's good. And he says, let me talk to my editor, I'll call you back. Calls me back. Okay, we're going to hold the story. Now, do you, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm going to give you the scoop. I'm going to give you the scoop. But I said, I can't give it to you till Monday. Then you can run it on Tuesday. And he said, okay. So, I mean, this is a war. We're in the midst of a war. We're fighting every front. Okay. So your prayers, cookies, uh, thoughts, it's all appreciated. <laughs> you, you'll know the war is going on as you gradually see me blossom. I'm denied so many joys of life while I'm doing this, I eat food. Okay, let's talk about Hebrews. I'm very excited to get to finish Hebrews this morning, not because it's gone, but because I love the end of the book so much. Hebrews is a wonderful book. I remember when I first came across Hebrews. Um, when we grew up, <clears throat> we moved around a lot. And uh, we moved to Rochester, New York uh, for, uh, uh, in fact, right after Holly was born. So it would have been 1968 in August, because she was born July 24th. And so uh, we waited to move from Pittsburgh to Rochester till after Holly was born and, and mom could travel. And uh, we went to Rochester and we grew up in the Church of Christ tradition. And one of the things about the Church of Christ tradition that, that's wonderful is, is it's very Bible focused. And uh, um, when we were at that stage in our lives as young kids and mom and dad at that stage in their lives and in, in their walk with God, they thought it very important to try and keep the, the, the upbringing of us as close to the Church of Christ model, for lack of a better word, as they could. Well, in Rochester, New York, where we moved, they didn't have a Church of Christ. And so we would occasionally go to other churches, but the main thing we would do is every Sunday we'd have church at home. And we had the songbooks, and we'd sing the songs. And that was easy to do because Church of Christ is a cappella. So, you know, hey, might as well sing at home. You know, you don't need the, all, all the accompaniment to do it, right? And we would uh, study the Bible. We'd have memory verses. And we'd have, and, and church was something we did at home for about four and a half years of our lives. And I can remember one Sunday, Mom saying, okay, well, we finished this. And she said to Dad, Bill, what do you think we should start on next week? And they talked it back and forth. And Catherine and I are listening because we've got to do memory verses. So we're hoping it's something that's got like short verses. And, and uh, um, uh, they, mom said, well, we could do Hebrews. But Hebrews is very difficult to understand. And uh, dad said, well, that's true, but we could do Hebrews. And that's when I first, in my memory, remember Hebrews and studying it. 
And in some ways it is difficult to understand. It takes a good deal of uh, Old Testament um, uh, uh, thought and understanding to follow through with it. And uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing when you've got it, uh, a chance to study it with all of that. And, and that's what we're going to finish here. To do this, I want to give you some reminders. <clears throat> I want you to remember why this is being written. And I've talked about this for two weeks now, so don't go to sleep on me. Uh, if you are saying, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I got it the first time or I got it the second time. Um, Moses, the foundation of Judaism with all that he did with the law and everything else, the, the point of Judaism was never to be an end within itself. Judaism was always something with the goal being to lead to Christ. See, the, the problem that requires Christ is not a problem of Judaism. The problem that requires Christ is the fall of man and sin, right? Judaism was the vehicle through which the Messiah would come that would save not just Jews, but would save all of mankind because it's a problem with all of man. So, so uh, what, what Judaism becomes is basically a road that says Jesus is ahead. That's it. I mean, that's what Judaism is. It's a road that leads to Jesus. And the problem that some of the early Christians, Jewish Christians were having that the book of Hebrews is addressing is some of them were saying, we're going to leave our faith of Jesus and return to Judaism. And that's just crazy. Judaism is a road to the destination. Once you get there, why would you want to get back on the road just driving circles with nowhere else to go? Because you've got nowhere else to go. Judaism can't point anywhere else other than to the Messiah. And so you can get back on and you can ride in circles. And that's why the, the author says, you know, what good does it do you if you leave Christ and you go back to Judaism? Christ isn't coming back to die a second time. You don't have a sacrifice at the end of Judaism that will take care of your sin anymore. And so the, the writer says... Jesus is the destination. Do not abandon Jesus. Jesus Christ is superior to anything else the world or Judaism has to offer. He's superior to angels. We dealt with that in the first couple chapters. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to the priests of the Levitical priesthood. And last week we talked about he has a superior covenant. When Scott this morning was talking to us and he kept using the passage, Jesus was not blind to this. He knew his purpose. Did you hear how Scott three or four times referenced the passage where Jesus said, this is the blood of my covenant. It's a new covenant. The old covenant that was established at Sinai between God and the Jews was a covenant based upon law and obligation. But in Jesus Christ, for Jew or Gentile alike, there is a new covenant which Jeremiah had prophesied about which Jesus had proclaimed was coming through His blood. And that new covenant is one where the law of God is written on our hearts and in our minds. And where we relate to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the world is okay with that. All the world is okay with us. Let me say it that way. When we relate to God through Christ. Okay? Let me explain what I mean. Christ is a superior sacrifice. And this is where we are this week. Christ is a superior sacrifice to anything the Jews had to offer. Now, if you consider the sacrificial layout for the Jews, originally, at the time this is written, it's the temple, right? 
but originally it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. And Moses had been given these exacting plans and told to build the tabernacle exactly like this. Okay? The, if we look at the layout of the tabernacle, and it's kind of a rectangle as I've drawn it here, you've got an altar where the sacrifices would take place. Next to the altar, you've got what they called a laver, which was probably round, we don't know for sure, but a big old bronze bowl filled with water where the priest could wash himself and, and cleanse himself. And if you're doing bloody sacrifices, you probably need a place to do that. But it's also symbolically the cleansing before the priest would go into an inner area. And there was a curtain. Um, I didn't do a good job and I don't have a pointer. But um, right up here, that's a curtain uh, going that way, uh, just on the other side of the laver. And uh, uh, the priest would go through that curtain, and when he went through there, there would be a table that had the showbread on it. There'd be a, a, an incense area, and then there was also a golden candlestick. Okay? And these are symbolic for things, and these were built for a purpose. And then that dotted line was an inner curtain. And on the other side of the inner curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. This area is called the Holy of Holies. This is where the priest could only enter once a year, and only the high priest. Okay? Now, this was the layout for the sacrifice. And if we go now, the writer of Hebrews goes to the Ark of the Covenant itself and says, let's look at it. And this is not the real one, because if you watched Indiana Jones, you know we're not going to like be messing with that. So, uh, <laughs> but this is uh, one artist's understanding based upon the dimensions, at least, that we've got in the Bible. And what we have in the Ark of the Covenant are, are three separate areas that we ought to focus in on for a minute. First of all, in the Ark of the Covenant, we have the things of man down inside the chest itself. They kept a jar of manna there. They kept, originally, they kept Aaron's staff that budded. And they kept the second set of the Ten Commandments because the first ones got busted up. Um, um, so those, though, are the things of man, right? It's, it's our food. It's, it's our leaders uh, with the staff. It's, it's our law and our relationship to God and the covenant from Sinai with the commandment. So you have the things of man in the chest. Then up above, those two things up there are things of heaven. Cherubim. They're angels. Cherubim is Hebrew plural. Cherub is singular. But you add I-M to get the plural. So those are cherubim. Or, or we could say cherubs if we wanted to make it kind of an English plural. But you got things of heaven above. Now, what is between the things of heaven and the things of men? A solid gold slab called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And this is where the priest would put the blood of the sacrifice when he went in there. But, and it's solid gold. It had to be pure gold. Because from the time God, Moses was told about this, God was making it clear it's priceless. It's the most priceless thing you could have. It's the most priceless thing you could make it out of. You've got nothing in the world known to you, Hebrews, of greater value than pure gold. And it's upon this pure gold that the blood's going to be sprinkled for the people. The blood's going to be offered. The blood's going to be thrown. And, and it is pure gold. The atonement cover. By cover, we're talking about a lid. Same thing with seat. It's, 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 it's something that the angels were sitting on. 
But the atonement part of that cover means this is the cover that takes all of the things of man below and atones for the evil and the sin and the bad so that the things above can be communed with. Okay? It, it, it is the, where, where the things of man can, can, can mesh with the things of heaven. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. And Jesus is a superior sacrifice to what the priests were throwing on that atonement cover because Jesus himself is the actual atonement cover. The pure gold, as priceless as it was, is not even in the ballpark of the value and the pricelessness of Jesus Christ, God made man. It is Jesus Christ, God made man, which is the atoning cover, which is the real blood. I, it, that Jesus is the reason that the things of man can dwell with the things of God. They coexist only because of the atonement of Jesus. Does that make sense? And that's what the writer says. The writer says it's not just that. Jesus is the real sacrifice. He says there's no other Hebrew sacrifice. Those didn't really work in a, in a real sense of washing your sins away. You really think you could get off from, from lying or stealing or cheating or adultery or something like that by killing a couple of pigeons? That doesn't work. Do you really think God's justice is one where, well, let's see. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't faithful to my marriage this week. I better go kill a pigeon. I'm okay now. No. No, that, that dog doesn't hunt as we say down here. That blood was always just a, a, a foreshadowing and a recognition that blood would be required. Death follows sin. Sin is serious to God. Now, for Christians though, because Jesus was the real sacrifice, He's also the completed sacrifice. It's done. He sits at the right hand of God. Why do we no longer follow the Old Testament and go sacrifice pigeons when we, uh, uh, you know, envied someone's new car? Uh, I envied. Better go kill a pigeon. No, we don't do that. Oh, well, it's, uh, it's that time of the year again where I need to uh, offer sacrifices to atone for my sins. No. Were those Jewish Christians thinking maybe, you know, we miss the Jewish system. It would be nice to go back and just do the sacrifice thing again because we go as a family and, you know, it always, it was, it was a, a really good liberating thing. No. There's no point in offering the fake sacrifices once the real one has been done once for all. You don't return now and start doing the fake ones. By the same token, now, now that's a different reason. Someone asked me after class uh, six months or a year ago, why don't Jews sacrifice today? Because they don't have an atonement for their sins. You know, the way the Bible set it up. Totally different reason. Totally different. Under King Hezekiah 600 or whenever it was B.C., the Jews instituted the idea that they would sacrifice only at the temple. And there are to be no more sacrifices on the high places or anywhere else except at the temple. So once the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Jews have not sacrificed since. 
because there is no appropriate place to sacrifice. That's totally different than Christians. We don't sacrifice because it's done. It's finished. The real sacrifice has now been taken place. Okay? Makes sense? So with that, the writer says what's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He says, Therefore, brothers, because of this, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, catch this. The most holy place is that inner part, the Holy of Holies, right? Who got to go in there? High priest. Who gets to go in there now? We do. We do. What had before been exclusively reserved for the high priest since the get-go, since the beginning, is now every Christian. We have confidence to come into the very presence of God. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. Not because we've genetically been one of the chosen high priests, but because Jesus Christ's blood has cleansed us. It's opened up a new and living way, opened it up through that curtain. The curtain was torn apart as Jesus died. And the Holy of Holies has, has been revealed for us. We now enter the presence of God. This living way has been opened through the curtain by the body of Jesus Christ and it's been opened for us. We have a great high priest who presides over the house of God. And so if this is God and we're the arrows, what we ought to be doing is drawing near to God because we have every reason to. We don't have to stay outside. We can go into the very presence of God. When we sing our songs of worship, we don't just sing songs about God, but we're called into His very presence with the angels themselves. Something very spiritual is happening when we bring ourselves before Him in worship. So this is what the writer says. He uses different words. His words are better than mine. I love his words because the writer says, with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. He says, when we go to God now, you know, you, you come before God. Sometimes I go before God and I just feel so, oh God, I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have any right to be here. I don't feel right about being here. I know what my life is like and I've ignored you for this long or I've been doing this and hoping you wouldn't notice or pretending not to think about you noticing or whatever it may be. And the assurance we have is we draw near to God not because of who we are, but we draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. What Christ did for us, the body that was broken for us. This is the new covenant. This is what we remember when we take communion. And for this reason, again, I'll steal a slide from last week because the writer re-urges it. He says, no U-turn. Don't turn back. Or he says it, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Don't even, not, not a U-turn, don't even swerve. Don't even make it look like you might turn. Don't even like cross over in the other lane or pull over to the shoulder. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Jewish Christians, he says, don't 
even remotely think you should return to the Jewishness. Because He, God, who promised is faithful. God is faithful. Now the Jews may be thinking, yeah, but 30 years ago when I got into this, I thought he was coming right back and I told everybody he's coming back and I said, you need to be with me. You know, when he comes back, you're going you're gonna to want to be on our side. And, uh, uh, you know, he hadn't come back. And I was telling them, hey, yours is not going to be working anyway. Your temple's going to be destroyed. You want to worship, you need to worship the living God in your hearts. And the temple's not been destroyed. He says, he who promised is faithful. Don't worry about that. Hold unswervingly. You don't need to make a U-turn. He says, not only that, but there's more you need to understand. Consider how you can spur each other on to good deeds. Don't take this as a loner. There's not anybody in this building right now who knows Jesus Christ who is alone. Not anybody. It doesn't matter if your spouse has left you or abandoned you. It doesn't matter if your parents are dead or living. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. It doesn't matter if you're an orphan. It doesn't matter if, if you're a, an only child. There is no one who's alone because we are family. And God is our Father. And the promise we have is one that tells us we should be helping each other out. We should, the writer says, let us consider how we may spur each other onto good deeds and love. And that's what we have to do. I, one of the reasons I love to do this, and, and I love to teach this class. This is a highlight in my week. And y'all give me great uh, encouragement that you'd even come listen. But one of the reasons I love this is because, to me, this is one of the ways I might be able to show you my love and encourage or spur you on to good deeds and try to help you in your life. And so that's, that's one of the, you know, this is what we do. And in this way, it's not just a lifestyle issue, but it's also a church issue. Because here in chapter 10, it's where the writer says, let's not give up meeting together, as some people tend to do. One of the reasons we come to church is to worship God. Amen. But there's another reason. It's because of the way we interact together. We come here because we need to show each other love. And we need to encourage one another and spur one another to good works. And so that's part of the reason we come together as well. Now also because of all of this, the writer says, let's remember sin. Sin is the very reason Jesus had to die. As Scott said this morning... The death of Jesus was to also show how sin hurts God and what sin does to God and how God has weeped and been torn apart because of what sin has done to us and His care for us. And he says, don't, don't, uh, don't go taking your sin and, and just doing it all the time without regard. Don't live as if it's no big deal because you're saved. Don't you understand that when you do that, you're trampling on the cross of Christ? You're just, hey, big deal. So he died. Big deal. I can sin now. That mentality needs to be so far from us and it, we need to vanquish it from our mind. Sin is not something we entertain. Sin is something we shun and we run from because we understand what it did to Christ. We understand. He says um, also in this sense, he says, remember your early days? 
I, I can, I can think, all right, there's a, a song. Um, what is it? There are two of them. Should I go for A or B? Vote. Who wants me to do A? Who wants me to do B? Ooh. Who wants me to shut up? <laughs> um, Amy Grant has a song, 1974, is the name of it. Weird title. 1974 was a year where Christ made a big difference in her life. And so she's singing about what happened in 1974. She says, we were young, none of us knew much what to say. And she just talks about how God, you know, still entered into her life and how fresh and new it was and how um, you know, powerful it was. And the writer's saying, you know, do you remember that? Do you remember how when you first came to Christ, how fresh and new and, and exciting it was? And how you wanted to tell the world? And there wasn't anything that was going to turn you away? He says, don't let go. Don't lose that. Which would have been the second song on the new U2 album. Where Bono says... Um, uh, uh, He's singing, I think, to his wife. I don't know. He says, baby, slow down. The end is not as far as the start. We're getting closer to the end. You know, the start, as, you, as your life goes on, you find the end's getting closer than the start. He says, but please stay a child somewhere in your heart. Don't lose track of the joy and excitement you had. Don't lose track of the fervor you felt. Don't let it be like um, an old flat soda that's lost its fizz. Can, let it be like, um, I don't drink wine, but it's the best example I can come up with. Let it be like a wine that ages, that, that, that develops, that matures. Not that loses what it has, but that gains and builds on it. And that's what our walk needs to be with God. Don't say, oh man, I was a fool as a kid because I was so excited about the Lord or when I was younger, when I first turned on. No, don't lose that. As you age and, and, and mature, find your roots growing down even deeper into that faith. Because you learn that it's not all just excitement but you learn that it's so much more. There's nothing wrong with the excitement of being a young Christian. But, but, but we grow deeper beyond that excitement as we get older in God, and as we see Him work through all of our things. You see, we learn that every day is not a day on top of a mountain. That you have mountaintop experiences, but you go down into valleys too. And this is what comes from living by faith. And so the writer goes into chapter 11 saying, live your life by faith. And he starts out and says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's being certain of what we're not seeing yet. We, you may not see Jesus' return. I haven't seen it yet. It hasn't happened. They had not yet seen the destruction of the temple. But living by faith means we don't abdicate our faith because of that. We hold on to our faith knowing it's just a matter of time. I don't know if Jesus comes today. I don't know if He comes next week. I don't know if He comes this year. I don't know if He comes in my lifetime. 
he may not come for 6,000 years. I see a lot of signs we're in the last days, but people have been writing seeing those signs for 2,000 years now. And if Jesus does not come this year, my faith's not shattered. And if by some fluke of medical science, y'all have to put up with me for 6,000 years and he still has not come, I'm still going to be up here saying the same thing. Because I'm certain he will come when the time is right. Now, I'll live like he's coming today. And if he does, amen, hallelujah, take us home. I got a lot of people there I want to see. Starting with my God and my Jesus. But if not, that's okay. That's okay. Because I know he's coming. And that's faith. See, this faith, consider, consider the role of faith, he says. Consider it. First of all, it is by faith, 11 verse 3. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command. Faith is what gives us understanding that the whole reason the world even exists, the reason there are stars in the sky, the reason there's a moon at night, the reason, I guess there's a moon during the day too. Actually, there's a moon like 24-7. But we just see it at night generally. But the reason the universe was formed of God's command is by faith we know that. We accept that. And he starts giving a litany. He says, by faith, in verse 4, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Why was it better? Well, we don't know physically. It was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was not. We do know that. But, but we don't know beyond what the writer here tells us that Abel offered a sacrifice of faith. It's not just Abel. By faith, in 11.5 it says, Enoch was taken up from this life so that he didn't have to experience death. He couldn't be found because God took, had taken him away. Enoch in the Old Testament. Enoch's taken up. One day he disappears. That's because he had faith in God. I always thought, and I don't know why, but I've always thought that Enoch had grown about as close to God as he could grow. And God will always give you a chance to grow closer. And the only way for Enoch that could happen is for him to be taken up. And so he was. But it was faith. It was faith that caused Noah to build the ark Noah was told things, uh, uh, verse 7 I think, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. It wasn't raining. If you haven't heard Bill Cosby explain this, you need to. He does a wonderful job. You've heard that, haven't you? No. Noah built an ark, why? I told you to, why? I told you to, God, why? Well, let me give you a hint. How long can you tread water? You know, Noah, okay. So he starts building the ark. But he hadn't seen it yet. He hadn't seen the flood. He hadn't seen the rain. But in holy fear, it says in Hebrews, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. See, think about that for a minute. If you've got family, and all of us do, I've already explained it. All of us are family. But do you think about how your life you lead and your faithfulness to God affects your family. It affects your family. It affects your parents, your spouse, your children, your brothers, your sisters. Be faithful. Live your life trusting God. 
it not only was Noah, um, that's Abraham. Uh, I know because it's got his name down here in real small print. It says Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed God, left Ur the Chaldees, and went to the promised land. God told him to go, he went. By faith, even though Abraham was past childbearing age, was past age himself, but his wife was also barren, he was enabled to become a father because, and this is straight from Hebrews, it says, quote, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. You think God's not standing up to his promise? Trust him. Because that's by faith Abraham did it. By faith, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews says Abraham's faith was so great, Abraham, quote, reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. That's how great his faith was. Because God had said clearly it's through Isaac. It's through Isaac. And you see the hand of the angel, or the angel, stopping and the knives falling, if you can see it, from Abraham. Abraham covers Isaac's face because he can't bear to look at his eyes. And he can't bear to have Isaac look at him. But Abraham's willing to sacrifice his son out of faith that if God said, this son will be the father of many nations, and this is the boy I'm going to do it through, and God told him to kill him, then for some reason in God's mind, God's going to raise Isaac from the dead. And God stops and says, no, Abraham, don't do it. I have the sacrifice. Because a son is going to die for the people and be raised from the dead. But not even your boy's that good. It'll be my son. I'll provide the sacrifice. And at that time, he provided a goat, symbolically. But the real son would die later. And, and that's the faith. That's the faith. By faith, Joseph, he, as he's about to die, he knows his end is near. But even though he hadn't seen it, even though he's not going to experience it, Joseph, by faith, is able to say to the children of Israel that God's going to bring you out of Egypt. And when he does, bring my bones with you. I don't want to leave them here. It was by faith. It was by faith that Moses was hidden as a child, trusting God would take care of him. It was by faith that Moses refused to be known as the child, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses could be the grandson of the Pharaoh with all that that meant. But by faith, instead, Moses chose to be mistreated instead of the short-term pleasures of having everything at his beck and call as a ruler in a Lord High muckety-muck in Egypt. It was by faith that Moses left Egypt. And, and the writer says, quote, persevering, by, and I love this, seeing him who was invisible. Moses continues, he perseveres, he holds the course, he does what God wants him to do, he stays on mission, he stays on purpose, and he does it seeing God who is invisible. Seeing through the eyes of faith. So think about faith. It's faith that causes the Red Sea to divide and the Israelites walk in the middle of the waters. And by lack of faith, the waters come down on the Egyptians and they drown. 
It was by faith that the walls of Jericho came down. It was by faith that Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, the prostitute who isn't even Jewish, hid the spies as they went into the Holy Land so that they'd be protected because she trusted that that would be, that was right to do before God. She welcomed the spies and was not killed with those who were disobedient, says in verse 31 of Hebrews 11. And not just that, Gideon. Not just Gideon, Barak, who also fought against the Midianites. Not just them, but if you go through, you've got Jephthah who fought. You've got Samson who did what he did by faith, by trusting God. By faith, you've got David killing Goliath. I found a better picture. We don't really know what David and Goliath looked like. I thought this one looked a little better. <laughs> Bring the lights down. That's worth looking at. That's a good picture. See, that's faith, man. Take down. Yeah. That's faith. By faith with Samuel. By faith the prophets. By faith, by faith, by faith. And do you know the ultimate faith? Right there. And the neat thing in chapter 11 of Hebrews as he goes through all of these things is he says, all of these people, they were all, quote, commended for their faith, yet none of them, not one of them received what had been promised. Not one of them received, not one of them received the promise of ultimate uniting with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. God had planned, and this is verse 40, I believe, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? Now he's speaking to a bunch of Jews here, Jewish Christians, and he says all of those you know, litany of people that you read about in your Old Testament, all of them with all of their faith, only with us are they made perfect. Only joining us in the death of Christ. Don't leave Jesus Christ for this old Hebrew tradition. Because it's pointless and it's meaningless and all of the heroes of its faithfulness are useless without Jesus Christ and us. It's all one big picture. Why would you take a completed puzzle and instead of learning from the whole puzzle and dwelling with the whole puzzle, pull out one of the pieces and say, no, this is going to be my view of things right here, baby. Because it makes no sense without the rest of the puzzle. And this is the reason why, the writer says, starting in chapter 12, that, that, that you're supposed to, you know, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, that, that just like you're at a race and you're about to run the race. You know, anybody seen any pictures of, uh, uh, what's his name, the little bike boy? Um, yeah, Lance Armstrong. <laughs> little bike boy. Um, the major bike man there, in case he ever listens to this. Uh, you know, I've seen some pictures of him doing this Tour de France thing. And it, I, I, I don't see any backpack on him. I don't see him wearing, you know, some ankle weights. I, these guys are so serious, they shave their legs. 
Because they don't want the wind on the hairs to slow them up. They don't want the extra weight. And the writer says, cast aside every extra weight you've got. There is nothing that you hold on to in your life that detracts you from following God that's worth holding on to. If there's something in your life that is, is, is between you and closeness to God, get rid of it. It isn't worth it. Cast aside every hindrance, every weight you've got, and run with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It lasts your lifetime. But you run that race because it is the only important thing in your life. And that's the way you do it. And this is why. This is why, the writer says, we accept discipline. Like parents, we discipline our children. And when God disciplines us, it's not because He hates us. It's not because He's mad at us. It's because He wants us to learn. He wants us to learn. And so we accept the discipline. And when something happens to us that's bad, we accept that with grace. We don't sulk. We don't get bitter against other people. We don't look for the revenge. We accept it with grace because there's a much bigger puzzle that we see the picture to. And we understand who the Lord is and He is in control of things. And it's not my job to fix everybody. It's not my job to fix my family. It's not my job to fix the world. It's not my job to fix y'all. My job is to walk humbly with my God, to love you, to spur you on to good works, to help guide my children and my family. But I'm not the fixer. God is the fixer. And I ever swap roles with him, we're all in trouble. When Moses was at the mountain, the writer says, the people couldn't go up on the mountain because there were clouds and gloom and it was shaking and everybody was scared out of their togas. It says, not so now. Now we've got a mountain of joy. Everyone wants to go see the Lord when they know him. When you know the joy of the Lord, you want to go. You want to be there. Are there times I don't want to come to church? Yeah, I guess so. But i got to tell you, as I get older, they're fewer and fewer and fewer. And more and more and more. It's just always, I can't wait. This is, there's such joy in getting together with y'all. There's such joy in worshiping the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. This is why we love each other as a family. This is what life's about. This is why we treat strangers well. The writer of Hebrews says, some of you have even entertained angels not knowing it. But this is the point of hospitality. This is why we're faithful in our marriage. This is why we are who we are. This is why we're content with what we have instead of spending every bit of our energies going after dollars. This is why we're consistent in what we do and we try to, 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 to be reliable in it why we stay the course. Does that make sense? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. And these are his illustrations. I've tried to put them into my words. But that's what this walk is about. And so this is not a walk which we should abandon just because it's not turning out today the way we expected it would. This is not a walk we should abandon just because our family wants us to. Or just because we're flagging in our zeal or energy or because it seems so long ago that we started this walk that it's just kind of become mundane and rote. This is the reason why we invigorate ourselves and each other and we come together. 
points for home. Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, seated at the right hand of God, is my assurance that everything's okay in the world. I'm trying this case, getting lots of media attention, which for a lawyer can be very good or very bad. If I win, oh, this is going to mean a lot of business, most likely. If I lose, then it's going to be a laughing stock among the legal bar about how Lanier stuck his neck way out there and got whacked off. But do I really care? Do I really care one way or the other? What I care about is doing my best, trying to help this widow, trying to hold this company accountable, and trying to present what I understand the truth to be. And if I win, then thank you, God. But if I lose, thank you, God. Because my times are in his hands. He's my God. And I'm here to do this stuff because I think it's what he wants me to do. And if I'm wrong, I want him to move me to a different road. I want to do what he wants me to. What better way to spend the rest of your days? What better way to spend the rest of your days than serving the almighty God and doing what he wants you to do? What better way to spend your marriage than treating your wife the way Christ would treat us? Lorraine's nodding, elbowing Castell. That's right. (laughs) I saw that. (laughs) Jesus is our assurance that come what may, rain or shine, all is okay with the world. So we're going to live faithfully. Will you commit to do that with me? And trust God. Will you commit to that with me? And trust God. And then if you've committed to that, let our lives reflect our faith. Let people know it by what they see. Fair? Pray with me. And by God's grace, we'll see each other next Sunday. Lord, thank you so much for the power in your word. The power of your Holy Spirit, Father, to to convict us of our sin and of your righteousness and of the judgment that you've set us free from that sin. Lord, we commit ourselves once again to you, afresh and anew, to follow your will in our lives. You are our God. We seek you earnestly. We behold you in your sanctuary in glory and honor and power by the blood of Jesus Christ with our hearts sprinkled clean. Lord, with all of the sin we have, by the blood of Jesus, we know we can stand before you or kneel before you or fall before you, but we can be before you as our God. Send us out and bring us back home. In Jesus' name, amen.